Welcome to the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology podcast, where we interview the most interesting people in translational neuroscience. Uh, my name is Verle, and I am a third-year PhD student at the Alzheimer's Center in Limburg at Maastricht University. And today uh, I will talk with researcher and psychologist Dr. Silke Matura. Maybe then to talk about other things you've done in research, because of course Prime is one of the main things I think you're doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but outside, uh, apart from that, what built up to this Prime research, um, what you've done previously? So actually, I also come from neurodegenerative research. So I was always very much interested in memory and what leads to memory impairments. I have Mm -hmm. investigated Alzheimer's disease, also the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. And um, for my PhD, for instance, I have done a very big fMRI study on the neural underpinnings of autobiographical memory Mm. in people suffering from a mild cognitive impairment. So my interest in cognitive assessment, in uh, memory and the mechanisms of memory and memory impairment, this is something which really also yeah, it, it it makes or I this is something I can really build upon um, here in 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 Prime. This is actually what I what I have done for quite some while. I'm also mm-hmm. um, a psychotherapist, so this is not necessarily the research I have been yeah. doing. But as a psychotherapist, I'm very interested in how emotional processes influence your lifestyle decisions. Yeah. Like oh, what what keeps people from doing things they know they're good for them. Yeah. Uh, getting up, getting up from the couch, uh, moving, uh, eating healthy foods. I mean, all of us know that this is something which is really beneficial yeah. for us. And most of us don't. So this is something from the psychological side that I'm I'm really interested in. Why do we decide so often against it, although we know that it would be yeah. good for us? Yeah, that is really interesting. I can imagine like I also notice myself when I'm a little bit sad or not feeling so well, I I start to lose my healthy habits a bit sometimes, (laughs) start eating more. I think a lot of people know the the stress eating. So I definitely think that you even actually have a disorder or or an actual depression diagnosed. It could maybe alter your habits as well. Yes. And also the other way around. I just, I just, uh, I've seen the talk by... Felice Jaka, which was mm-hmm. really inspiring on the emerging field of uh, nutritional psychiatry. And it's amazing how they could show in, in how much uh, the diet really influences also mental health yeah. and psychological well-being. So it's really both ways. Yeah. If, you, if you don't feel well, if you are depressed, you, you don't get up, you don't move, you, you might uh, stick to unhealthy foods. Yeah. But it's, it's changing this, changing these lifestyle behaviors really can have a very big impact yeah. also on mental health. Yeah, I can imagine that. That sugar, too much sugar maybe... <laughs> shortly increases your mood but on a long term it might only make you feel yeah it's worse. High, high fat high yeah. sugar is yeah. it's, it's the worst combination yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. so we should work on that <laughs> yes <laughs> 
So yeah, you're telling that you're also a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. So you're a psychologist. Mm -hmm. How how did you come to being both research and and being a psychologist? Like you're now mainly doing research, I think you said before. Mm -hmm. um, but are you do st still doing some psychological work at the moment? Yes, what what I do right now, I don't. I'm not uh, involved in the treatment of patients. Um, I have done that for quite some while. And I enjoy it very much. And for me, I think what what's big advantage of being a researcher, but also a trained clinician at the same time, is that it's easier, I think, to deal with with certain things that come up also with the patients that you investigate or that that you're working with uh, in your research. Yeah. And um, the my my goal when I started um, research, when I, when I started becoming a psychologist, was to help with memory impairments. So, what yeah. we know is right now there's still not really a, a cure for Alzheimer's disease, and no. memory impairment is something that that really it's very people suffer very very much if they have yeah. memory impairment, and there are some aids they can use external aids, memory aids they can use to to get better along, but still it's it's very devastating, and so. My goal was to treat this or to maybe find a solution from a psychotherapeutic perspective yeah. to see how you can better deal with these impairments, maybe not curing them, but to see how you can yeah. find a way to live with it. And yeah. uh, from a research point of view, um, I'm really interested in uh, preventive strategies. So, what can we do that you don't ever that, that you don't get yeah. memory impaired? And lifestyle, f for now, uh, at least physical activity and and also nutrition, they are the most uh, powerful preventive strategies that we have right yeah. now. So, yeah. It's both, you know, yeah. not finding the cure, but preventing and helping to live with it. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also nice to combine being a psychologist and a researcher because in the clinic you might have a better view on, yeah, on how the patients actually behave and what their problems really are. You mm -hmm. do not only read about it, but you really know what the problems are based on different stories. Because it can, of course, also differ a lot between people. And I think individualized treatment is also very important in where you really focus on the patient. Because I think different kinds of strategies or therapies might be important in different kinds of people. It's not only one cure or one a strategy that works in everyone. And I think if you're working as a psychologist, you get maybe get a better view on that? I think, for, for instance, working with lifestyle interventions, motivation It's yeah. a very important point, and although it's it's very worthwhile also to study the the neural underpinnings and also to look at the pathophysiological mechanisms, it's also very important to get people to do yeah. what's good for them, and it's it helps to know a little bit about on how to motivate people to do yeah. things. Yeah, exactly. It differs a lot also among people how to motivate them. I think some yeah. people are easily motivated by only knowing that it's healthy for them but others need much more 
I think, to really get them to change their behaviors, their diet or their physical activities. So now I want to move on actually to another issue because you talked about measuring cognition. So you're using neuropsychological testing to look at attention or executive functioning, working memory. It's a very broad definition, of course, measuring cognition. And we do have these different domains, but how how do we actually measure them? And how can you really capture that one single function and not... Because I think it's often a bit overlapping as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we have very different measures for cognition. For instance, for the working memory, uh, we use the letter number span. So uh, mm-hmm. participants, they have to repeat a sequence of uh, numbers and letters um, that the investigator reads them to to them, the this, this, this sequence, and then they have to pre- repeat it after him or her. Um, yeah, and this is a measure of working memory. We also capture visual memory. So uh, we use you might you might be familiar <laughs> with that with a Ray Osterid figure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very it, complex yeah. figure, and um, they need to first of all they need to copy that figure, but uh, at a later point um, they they need to draw it freely. Yeah, and. Uh, I think it's a very sensitive measure also of visual memory because it's it's, re- it's really hard to remember all the yeah. little <laughs> yeah, details I, I, that come I with this figure. figure. Yeah. I might not still not be able <laughs> to draw it from <laughs> my mind might. and I saw it so many yes. times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for processing speed, uh, we use the very widely used trainmaking aid test. Um, so they have to, there are different numbers and they just have to, Connect, outside, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you know it too. <laughs> they have to connect the numbers uh, as fast as they can. And then we also have the block tapping test. You might be familiar with this. I heard of it, but we're not using it. It's also a measure of uh, visual memory. So there are certain blocks and the investigator taps on these blocks and then yeah. they have to remember um, like the sequence and then yeah. they have to do it as well. The order, yeah. Yeah. I think they were. The order. A lot of video games in my youth who sort of used the same kind of <laughs> kind of thing that you needed to remember the order of certain blocks. Yeah, so I think actually in, in Prime we have a very thorough assessment. And when I developed the the protocol, I really I wanted to make sure that these measures are really sensitive even to very small impairments of memory yeah. um, and attention, because I think that with the prediabetes, there are some impairments, um, but they are very subtle. And uh, you really have to make sure to capture these subtle impairments. Um, yeah. that's the, These are quite hard tasks. Yeah. And our participants, they say, wow, this was really exhausting. Super difficult. But then uh, in the end, I think we are really able to to capture even subtle impairments. Yeah. Yeah. I think because it's super difficult also because already in these kind of tasks, there is probably a huge uh, personal difference, but difference between persons in how well they do on these tasks. Yes. Just without, without talking any... about cognitive impairments or I think the range is super, super big in how people perform on these tasks. And how do you know then if they are impaired or not. 
Right. So in order to, to know if someone is impaired or um, we have this, like, uh, we have certain tables, we have normalized values. So mm -hmm. we know how people at the same age, the same sex, the same educational background would normally yeah. perform. And then we can see if they perform worse or maybe better than, than the average person with yeah. the same background. Yeah, so you're comparing it to a group that should be around a similar level of the same sex and age. Right. And education, I think, is also very important there to... It, uh, it's very important. ...to yeah. take into account. So you are a neuropsychologist as well, right? Yeah, yeah. What do you like about neuropsychology? I really like that it's always a puzzle with these tasks, that you have different neuropsychological tasks, and to combine how people are um, scoring on those tests... Um, And what they tell you, it can be different or very similar to what you see in the neuropsychological tests that you're doing. Um, and also if you combine it with MRI scans, for example, of the brain, or what we also do is those biomarker measurements. And if you combine all of those things, it, it can be a bit of a puzzle, uh, what's going on with a person. And I think that's, um, that's the challenge of neuropsychology. But I think it's also super interesting to see how certain brain damage on MRI that you can actually see that in how people perform on neuropsychological tests and also with the biomarkers because we really consistently show that if people have these proteins in their brain that they really uh, perform less well on these memory tests and also decrease more over time mm -hmm. kind of quickly already yeah. correlates very well right? yeah yeah so it's super interesting tool to to find out in what domains and how people um, yeah how brain damage actually converts to changes in people's cognition and how that in the end affects people's daily life of course yes absolutely uh, we have done now we have done some interim analysis also uh, already with the with the prime data and uh, what we could already see is that there actually is an impairment in the prediabetes group hmm. so um, I expect when we increase numbers this will become even more stati yeah. statistically significant but we already see that and also what I like is being a, a neuropsychologist it's it's always a little bit of a of a puzzle it's yeah. always a little bit also of being a detective and really bringing all the pieces together and exactly finding the, the diagnosis yeah really finding what is going on in that brain and mm -hmm. how how does it work. And it's really interesting to see that blood glucose levels already before having diabetes can affect your cognition yeah. that much. I think it's really something that needs to be researched further and it's really useful for those preventive strategies and just important for future, uh, future research and future prevention strategies. So you talked about mainly about interventions and lifestyle. How can people actually, what can they change in their behavior to act upon it right now? Like for the people at home, what would you advise them to do to get those blood glucose levels under control? Although they don't measure them, of course, <laughs> and to, yeah, to be healthy and to prevent uh, their cognition from declining. So there have been a number of studies uh, that have shown how lifestyle uh, affects cognition and also how lifestyle can help if, if you're doing the right things, how um, physical activity 
uh, how it can help to slow down also neurodegenerative processes. So uh, there has been one big study that has just come out uh, with the participants in the UK biobank. And what they could show is that if you um, have a step count, if you do 9,826 <laughs> steps wow. a day. That's very specific. <laughs> it's very specific. You looked I, that up before the interview. <laughs> I think if you do 20 steps more or less, that probably, probably doesn't have any impact. But um, this exact number of steps, um, if you do that each day, um, you can decrease your risk of developing dementia by 50%. 50%. 50%. And this but lot. this was just for the time frame of 7 years. So because they can't really right now they they can't wow. say you never ever will develop dementia <laughs> but if you look no. at the time frame of uh, 7 years um yeah it was decreased the risk was decreased by 50%. And wow. I think this is very powerful. Yeah. Um so those step counters, the, the smartwatches that everyone's using nowadays, or uh, I'm wearing one as well, <laughs> are really good, you would say. Yes, they are good. Um, if, you, if you don't just look at your watch to see how much you did, but <laughs> no. if, you are, if you increase your step counts, um, if it's not enough. Yeah, yeah, they are. And maybe the good news is because not everybody uh, can do 9,826 steps no. a day. Um, even if you just do 3,800 3, steps a day, um, you already can uh, decrease your dementia risk by 25%. So I am. getting up, avoiding sedentary behavior already helps a lot. A lot. And yeah. um, this is this has been shown consistently that sedentary behavior is not good for your brain. It's not, at all. It's yeah. not good for your health. So even if it's just a little and even if you don't if you don't really uh, walk four kilometers each day, um you you already do a lot for your brain. Yeah. And then based on that research, do they also say is it like a linear um, relationship. So the more you move, the better it is for your brain. Or mm -hmm. so the the uh, WHO they uh, just brought out some recommendations. 2020 are the newest uh, recommendations by them, and what they say is these recommendations. What they, what they state is that uh, you should move or you should do physical activity. Um, about 150 to 300 minutes each week at okay. a moderate, like a moderate intensity. And walking is enough. So getting those walking, yeah. like brisk walking or cycling would be one of them, but also yeah. gardening or dancing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you, you don't also. necessarily have to go running each day. No. And what they could find, it's it's kind of a linear relationship, but if you do much more than 300 minutes a day, I'm sorry, a, a week, week. <laughs> this this can also have detrimental effects. So detrimental it's not effects. necessarily like if you move 600 minutes each week, that doesn't mean that you that you have double the benefits. So no. yeah, no. So that would be, also be strange. More than 300 minutes are not necessarily recommended. But even detrimental, you say? Yeah, it's it, this is not really clear right now, but it, like if you look at mar marathon runners, for yeah. example, at some point, it's not really healthy anymore. No, no, I can imagine. It's running for 
your, your body is probably just not yeah, made the, to do that. <laughs> yeah, for the joints yeah. and, and everything. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not that the WHO says don't don't do more than three hundred minutes. It just no. shows that it's not a really not a just not, not only linear. It's not yeah. the more you do, the better. It's just yeah, three hundred minutes is it's not that professional. Uh, yeah, athletes have better chances yeah. of uh, <laughs> have a better cognition than mm -hmm. people who just have average amount of activity. Yeah, that is very interesting though. How that, yeah. The simple thing you would say, yeah, just walking, moving around, having steps, gardening already can increase your cognition that much, or not increase it, but not decreasing, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> help help preventing the decrease. Yeah. I would say slow down neurodegeneration. Yeah, and so now we talked about physical activity with regard to nutrition. Like I said, this is really an, an emerging field, and I don't think that we now very much already but what we know is that for example the intake of um, unsaturated fatty acids like omega-3 mm -hmm. uh, fatty acids this is for sure beneficial for the brain so yeah. uh, it could be shown that this also slows down degeneration and it even can lead to morphological changes in the brain so this this is for sure something which is which is which really benefits yeah. the brain and also benefits cognition it's also very important besides the physical activity then yeah and then what kind of foods for the people at home what kind of foods then should we eat you mentioned so, olive oil i think before already. yeah olive oil olive oil would be one of them nuts nuts are rich in in unsaturated fatty acids cold water fish mackerel oh, yeah. for example it's very rich in in omega-3 uh, fatty acids so these are the things which which are good for your brain and yeah. uh, vegetables you know vegetable, vegetables for course, sure yeah. five Everyone portions knows. of vegetables every day <laughs> still difficult to get <laughs> to the actual amount that's recommended but yeah everyone knows vegetables are important yeah and it's i, I think it's also about avoiding highly processed foods sugary drinks yeah sugary foods high high fat high sugar has been shown to be rather detrimental on the brain also. yeah yeah can be very difficult though i think in a supermarket nowadays there's so yeah. many processed foods yeah and unfortunately some many of those processed foods are very nice so yeah our, our brain it. is wired that way because it's, yeah. it uh, di directly taps into our reward system if yeah. if we consume these foods and so we are more prone to these foods or to consume these foods than yeah. to have an apple or broccoli exactly would you say that people nowadays um, are maybe a bit addicted to sugars or to processed foods mm -hmm. um, because we are so used to it. I think it's therefore also more difficult to lower your increase now. Yes, in a, in a certain way, yes. I think we, we are, it's, it's hard to resist um, the feeling that you would like something sweet or yeah. something which is high in, in fats. Yeah. And it's so much more convenient to have something yeah. which is which has been already prepared for you than to cook yourself exactly. many times. Yeah. A lot of stuff to think about. <laughs> yes. But I think we already uh, talked for quite some while. Um, so I think it might be good to um, close it off. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe some um, some nice question to close it off with based on, on you doing your research and 
also being a psychologist, did you change things in your own behavior, your own diet or physical activity on what you know now? Mm -hmm. Yes, I did, actually. I, I try to reach a step count of at yeah. least 8,000 steps a day. That's what I try. I, I don't own a car, so I go everywhere by <laughs> wow. bike. Uh, if I can, I take the steps. I don't take the elevator. I try to avoid highly processed foods. I try to avoid foods that are very high in fat and sugar, but I'm also just a human. <laughs> so there are many yeah, instances when, yes, I, I just have a burger on the couch watching also, TV. Yeah, of course. It's also impossible, I think, to, to never eat any processed or, or sugary foods Yes, nowadays. Yeah, I think for me, I also, um, I definitely do try to reach the step count every day and for the food yeah we definitely try to cook always for ourselves but like you say sometimes a nice cookie or some processed foods or ordering a pizza is just it's just nice and somewhat sometimes you can reward yourself i think but i think the most important point is to find some some nice balance in that absolutely yes yes Thank you for listening, <laughs> listeners at home. I think this was the podcast by us. Thank you, Silke, for being here today and for uh, having this very nice interview. Thank you, Gale. Yeah, no I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the European College of Neuropsychopharmacology. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewee and not necessarily the official position of the ECNP. And of course, this should not be the basis for clinical treatment decisions.